Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Current Events with Max and Coborn. It's a Mocha podcast where we talk about, that's right, current events. My name is Max Cohen. I'll be one of your hosts today, and I'm joined, as always, for Current Events by our lovely co-host and the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art, Mr. Coborn Bell. What's up, Coborn? Pleasure to be here, as always, Max. Thank you. Of course, thank you. We are going to talk about some of the latest trends in crypto art, in crypto, in blockchain, in the economic crypto world we're going to just jump right into it Colborn, the first current event of the day is to me the most important and also um most devastating async art announced mm. that it was going to close down today um async art is a platform that hosted a whole lot of different possibilities and procedures for crypto art it allowed for layered artworks owning of layers and master artworks it allowed for on async blueprints it allowed for the creation of like generative projects um it was a really fundamentally important tool they were the platform that minted first supper um, back in 2020 which combined a ton of different crypto artists i think it was like 13 or 14 of the early crypto artists into a single piece that was collected by medicovan who's famous for collecting uh beeple's uh, 5,000 piece every day is the $69 million sale. So Async Art has been around for quite a while. Its founder, Conlon Rios, has been a stalwart member of the crypto art world. Um, and this is a pretty seismic event. We've seen projects close or shutter, Versum most recently, but the loss of Async Art feels particularly pregnant. So um, first of all, how did this news affect you? What do you think about the fact that Async Art has had to shutter its doors? Tough really tough async are you know in the beginning there there were no marketplaces right and i think a lot of what conlin is saying in a bit of this farewell note is that it was it was tighter it was closer it was about support and it was about discovery and you know in my you know my journey started with super rare but but next it took me to async because I thought what async was doing was so incredibly innovative and unique uh, that how could it not be the future landscape? You know, how cool was it that there were dynamic states of NFTs? This is like really moving beyond, um, you know, what is, you know, the, <laughs> the, the image as the image, the painting as the painting, the art as the art suddenly the art is multifaceted, it can change state, it relies on social dynamics and, and it changes. And you saw artists really playing with this medium in such interesting and fascinating ways. You know, you go back to the first supper piece and that is truly one of the most iconic crypto art collaborations in, in history. So they were facilitating all sorts of things. So it is, you know, it's also with a heavy heart to receive this news. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of that, the dynamic quality of the NFTs there, it was really, I had just written about this on Twitter, but it was really quite shocking and profound when I came across the pieces in the Genesis collection that we had from Async. Thinking of the Memorial by Carlos, Carlos Marcial, mm. thinking of A Day of Soft Construction by Menards and Sundial mm. by Bands Design, all of which, or at least the latter two, changed states depending on the time of day. Yeah. And 
that to me was such an incredibly evocative and powerful uh, demonstration of what can be done with smart contract integration, what the actual capabilities of crypto art when it is driving on the highway of the blockchain, like what that's capable of. It was really quite, quite amazing. And I think a lot of crypto art has lost, it's used, and you've been saying this for quite a while, it uses the blockchain not as a front end mechanism, but as more of a back end distribution mechanism, which is revolutionary in its own right. But to see on async so many different ways in which the smart contract should could become a piece of the art itself and a an intensifier of the art itself to allow it more themes more ways to be art more creativity that was really profound um and i'm i'm nervous i know that there are plenty of platforms that allow for all sorts of different things now but async was perhaps the first and definitely among the most vocal in terms of its actions for utilizing the blockchain for its many unique capabilities. Yeah, you know, there's there's one other piece I think you didn't mention, which is Still Life with Apple by Officina SDK, yeah. yes, uh, which when I saw it, I thought it was just the most beautiful minimalistic expression. It was such a wonderful piece that I could begin to point people to because of its minimalism um, and this kind of beautiful universal appeal that it has to say that this is kind of like the work of the new masters and, and look what people can do. Um, and, you know, I might own uh, all of the layers, but I don't own the one that covers and uncovers the apple. Right. And I get who it is yeah. that owns that layer they were a big early collector. And I remember like asking them, like, please uncover the apple. The apple is so beautiful. They're like, no, I won't do it. I'm like, why don't you want to do this? It was it was such a funny social interaction. And eventually, you know, they did. It, the piece, by the way, it's um, it's almost like a disco ball kind of composition. And it sits on a table and there's various qualities of light filtering from above. It's a still life, but it's a still life of an unreal object that Officinas calls the apple. You're talking about the layer in yeah, which it's you know you black, either right? see the apple or there's just like a black circle void in the middle of it. And I I was using this as a very mm -hmm. early example to explain to people how this is different than perhaps just say strictly digital arts. You know, for me, this is an element of performance on the blockchain in which a state change needs to occur. A collector needs to work in concert with other collectors to determine the final output. Uh, and, it, and it was really unique because the artist also didn't have final say over what the composition was, right? So they give up a lot of control in this as well. And, you know, some people played with the number of permutations that could exist. I think it was Daim Al-Yad that did a piece that had maybe trillions of permutations. <laughs> so, you know, that, that almost ensured that you would never see the same artwork more than once. So why this wasn't more embraced uh, to me was was always interesting. I get that it, you know, it was certainly towards the end there, it was difficult and expensive to facilitate all these state changes on Ethereum. Um, and it was difficult to, I think, find an appropriate API call that brought these pieces into the metaverse. 
Uh, I would have, of course, loved to see Vans design Sundial. We could have done a whole exhibition and watched it change every hour if, you know, there was a metaverse that could have been pulling all of those state changes. So a lot of these pieces, I think, got to be observed in the way they were meant to be observed. And perhaps that's why they weren't appreciated in the way that they should have been appreciated. Yeah, like many things, I think, in early crypto art, async felt and feels ahead of its time. And I think we're definitely going to come back around and mass to this idea of utilizing the smart contracts of blockchain in more and more profound ways. Um, but I'm I'm curious, like, what do you think will happen? What do you think will happen to these artworks? I mean, I'm sure that that's top of mind for async as it figures out what to mm. do with all of these assets. But these dynamic artworks that relied on the async backend, at least to be mm-hmm. um, seen. I, I'm not sure that something like OpenSea or another like gallery platform or, or service will be able to showcase, and if not showcase, then contextualize the dynamic appearance of these pieces in the way that they certainly were meant to and absolutely deserve to be seen as. Yeah, so I don't know what the direct contract functionality is. I imagine we we won't be able to change states. So a lot of that state changing depended the UI UX of async. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know the assets are all pinned to IPFS and seemingly the assets themselves are safe. And seemingly if somebody wanted in the future, perhaps they could build a, you know, it, Colin said they're going to try and prioritize building a simple UI UX. But I don't know if, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either, but... I'm not technical enough. Yeah, nor, nor am I, as has been demonstrated <laughs> on this program many times. But I am confident, I'm hopeful and confident that the future will be very kind to async art. The, the legacy of async art will continue to exist within crypto art because of all the possibilities it allowed and because of the many creative mechanisms by which it allowed artists to access the blockchain. So, yeah. You know, they had, they had also, we should mention, very interesting forays into generative music. Mm. And, you know, the, the blueprint technology was very interesting, allowing artists to, uh, you know, I think it was brought about right after the, the open edition craze and do larger quantities, but they were all one of one of X. Yeah, it's like what Sovereign Art is doing now with the serial one of ones, but this was uh, quite a bit in advance of that, or maybe not in advance of that, but it was at least uh, running concurrently to kind of the beginnings of Sovereign. When now that it's called yeah. you know, serial one of ones, and we kind of all have a better grasp on what that means. But yeah, it occupied, occupied an interesting place, especially during the height of like the PFP meta craze to be able to engage in artworks that um, prioritized or if not prioritized and at least centralized like trait generation, but in a way which still felt art forward. Yeah. And I don't know if, if Conlon gets his flowers or, or not appropriately, um, but built some of the first metaverse galleries in, in crypto voxels. Yeah. Uh, was an incredible early collector, clearly brilliant developer. So had so much vision Passion, foresight, Lisa as well was a dear friend. Um, and a lot of, you know, the people on on the team were were wonderful. So, you know, everybody was wonderful. Excited to see what they turn to next. I mean, Colin is a, uh, what's the word, an irrepressible mind. And I'm sure that he will continue to make a, a strong impression on crypto art in the future. But Async Art, 
rest in peace to one of the true innovators of the platform of the movement. Somber news to begin the podcast, but let's move into another current event. So I had seen the other day that the Norman Rockwell Museum, Norman Rockwell being the famous uh, American uh, photographer, passed away in the 70s, late 70s, I believe. Uh, Norman Rockwell's museum is releasing never-before-seen art of his as NFTs, which is fascinating. Uh, we recently saw this with Keith Haring work that was auctioned by Christie's and turned into an NFT. Uh, mm -hmm. Jackson Pollock Studios did some kind of like an AI collaboration earlier this year. But I want to talk mm -hmm. about this larger trend of dead artists having new work released as <laughs> NFTs. As it's, there's a lot of connotations and implications of this. And so just very preliminarily, how do we feel about this trend, Colborn? This is like a, uh, you know, this to me feels like a house that isn't a home. Mm. This, it feels very sad and incomplete and, you know, without kind of the, the life and joy that would make it uniquely interesting. This is obviously something that they, I guess, to, to try and capitalize or experiment or, you know, they never say why they're doing it. And I find that very interesting. It, it brings me back a couple of years to when uh, museums were exploring minting digital twins of their collection. Mm. Uh, and that was very much just kind of a bit of a desperate bid to, to get through COVID. Yeah. Uh, when, when attendance was so low and, you know, you, you kind of wonder what is the existential threat to these institutions that they're resorting to this. When this happens in literature, which is not super rare, um, a couple of examples like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher Tolkien, um, writing within the Middle Earth world. Um, Stieg Larsson, who wrote uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, another writer picked up from... Uh, Steve Larson after he passed away um, suddenly and continued with the franchise. It's interesting in that realm because you are continuing the story, which is not necessarily, even though it's imagined and created by the artists themselves, it's not owned by the artists. I mean, fan fiction is a huge, I don't know, category feels like a reduction of the form itself, but it's in the sense of having like an estate put out canon fan fiction, there's at least some kind of a, a sense in that. Now, I don't think that we can necessarily trust the estate of an artist who knows how many generations down the line to safeguard the interests of the person themselves because they're no longer with us. But it does just seem strange to me. Art does not have, at least the art of these photographers, I mean, you can create a thematic narrative, but there's not a specific narrative. There's not a thematic reason why all of the lost artworks or behind the scenes, et cetera, of these artists, or in the case of the Jackson Pollock AI mashup, the, I guess, underlying compositional strategy of these artists needs to be carried forward. So it does feel a little, I mean, it feels seriously opportunistic, but yeah, I, that's such an interesting point that it's a house, but not a home. You know, we were just talking with async art about like all of the reasons that these pieces mm. minted on async art, these dynamic pieces benefited from its blockchain integration, how async art allowed that. And I'm not certain, perhaps saying I'm not certain is itself a euphemism, but I'm not certain that these pieces are gaining anything by existing as digital assets. They were not digital to begin with. They were not aware of the technology upon which they're being imprinted. It seems 
a bastardization of the point of the blockchain art. And it seems like it's using it, as we mentioned before, as little more than a distribution mechanism, which feels, again, like a reduction of what blockchain is capable of. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things in this, right? One, you didn't put the disclaimer that we never, I am not prepared for this. We don't have the current events in advance. So in just thinking about this, my first question is, of course, who benefits, mm -hmm. right? Why have, you know, these people chosen iconic to partner with, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm here in the background Googling iconic NFTs. Well, I'll tell you, you know, this isn't even the first <laughs> group that pops up there's like an iconic nfts.xyz that front runs it which seems to be a collection of terry bain's moon photography mm. uh and then the third thing is iconic moments uh which is the platform that claims to be the first web3 platform built exclusively for cultural institutions and brands well it doesn't feel accurate well one it doesn't feel accurate of course if only we had some kind of a technology that was nascent to this art movement that could tell you without a shadow of a doubt who was the first to do this or that. Right. And I love, of course, that there there's no mention of the team hmm. on this. How much of our staff time? It's, it's, it's definitely sloppy. Right. So you kind of wonder. I always wonder who is behind these things and why are they, why are they doing this? And of course, this isn't to say that people are, bad right or malicious right if no. you know, this company comes to the norman rockwell museum and says hey we can make you know seven figures on this sale if we digitize and release as nfts some of these pieces and then the museum can then do things with that money that is going to allow them to sustain their operations or bring rockwell's incredible photography to more people like you make that deal but it's just interesting to see not just artists of the present dabbling in nfts but artists of the past being resurrected as nfts um and it's strange it, it's like the uh tupac hologram i was gonna say i mean there is just this continual clumsy interaction when art tries to bridge into tech and tech tries to bridge into art Tra tech tries to drag art into tech I mean, <laughs> you, you can't have both, right? You have people that have all the knowledge in the world, like Async, and, you know, should the Rockwell family, Rockwell Museum partnered with Async to do something like this? Yes, because that's like the best development team and that has the, the heart and soul and speaks to the people in it. Or you have these people that already have these connections into the art world trying to front as the people that represent this technology. Uh, and it just isn't working. You know, and I see here for whatever reason, IMG is listed on the IMG, the talent agency. Uh, yeah, is listed here at the bottom of the, the press release. Well, I don't think we have to like go into a huge diatribe about how there's plenty of actors out there who want to make a quick buck using NFTs, whether that's IMG, whether that's I don't know anything about this iconic platform service, you know whatever they call themselves, the first Web3 something or other. But I don't know. Again, it just seems strange, especially in this moment when NFTs are uh, long since past being a dirty word and are now just atop the garbage heap of social terminology. Why now to uh -huh. bring these pieces to the blockchain? It's just interesting. And, and it feels 
again, to me, like a bastardization of the artist's legacy. Um, I feel like there should not be such a fervor to bring and bridge old works to new technologies. They should just exist in the cultural moment and cultural milieu they existed in and not try and attach themselves to a cultural moment they have nothing to do with, and that's okay. Norman Rockwell's photography was not about you know, the 21st century digitized America. It was about middle America in the middle of the 1900s. And that places it a certain place and time. And there's just, it's not even a connection. It's a strange, a strange, strained juxtaposition now that this like. Yeah, it's really, really unfair when the artist doesn't have a decision. Mm -hmm. And I, again, and I don't know if it's like the estate of these painters, photographers, et cetera, uh, or these museums, but definitely isn't the artist. There's just nobody there to answer the question, well, why does NFTs make sense for this collection? Yeah, and no one's asking the question. The project itself isn't asking the question. It's just a digitization. And I think that it, it should be incumbent upon the artwork itself to ask the question of its own medium. I think that's a lot of what the most successful crypto art does is interrogates why it's on the blockchain, why it's an NFT, why it needs to have this smart contract integration, it justifies the question with itself. And these pieces uniformly do not do that. They don't reckon with the questions at all. So just, you know, I've been doing some Googling on the background, found the CEO, Chris Cummings. Um, and it seems to be this. It seems to be that, you know, 30% of museums globally are at risk of closing permanently. Uh, and 25% of museums in the, US has, in the U.S. have less than four months of funding to survive. So I imagine, you know, legacies dwindle, times change. Mm -hmm. The idea of kind of a, a physical institution honoring individuals is, is increasingly passe. You know, they are looking for ways to adapt to them. But the problem is, is, is that almost the times have kind of changed so far beyond them. Yeah, and they're changing freaking quick, even from those within this space that, you know, should by all rights be most set up to uh, adapt with them. But adaptation is hard. And uh, I don't know, I guess a, a quick money fix. I mean, it's it's not going to do anything for Rockwell's legacy, but it might keep the doors open for another couple of years, which I guess is the point of these institutions in the first place is just to continue. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I had, if I had unlimited funds in the world, if I would be interested in buying one of these. Yeah, well, if I ever become a billionaire, the first thing I'm doing is making a big donation to the Norman Rockwell Foundation. That's really kind of you. Thank you. So next current event, new XCopy work. We haven't heard much from XCopy artistically in about eight months. He released five pieces on February 16th and 17th of this year, uh, all seemingly conducted as over-the-counter transactions, um, which was his first work, I believe, since... Uh, Max Payne and Friends, the open edition that came out towards the end of 2022. But new that was all the that was all the super rare work. It might have been on super rare. I was looking at it on OpenSea, and it seemed uh, there were five pieces. Uh, they were all handled in over the counter transactions. There was no uh, mention of funds, so I'm not sure if they were minted on super rare uh, or not. I think uh, most of those, I believe, ended up in his personal vault. Oh, did they? I, I, believe, I mean, you know, he had made originally an agreement to mint X number of pizzas. I think it was around 240. Um, and he arrived at that number earlier this year. He recognized that he had none of his own work. Mm. So I, I believe that he minted, 
you know, the, the rest of them in succession and sent several of them to his personal vaults. That's, that's what I recall happening. And I don't know if that was before or after. I feel like he did something with proof. And it, w- it was then I was kind of like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> well, at the risk of going over X-Copy's entire minting history, I think the reason I wanted to talk about this, and this piece is called Algo Bro. It seems from appearances to be an edition of 42. Um, it was minted on a manifold contract in a series uh, titled Fresh Hell, of which this is the first piece. But we know that the market and crypto art culture at large both pay huge attention to Xcopy when Xcopy decides to do something new. Um, so what does something like this represent, if anything, that Xcopy is releasing new work, that it is another edition, that it is on a you know self-controlled contract on manifold? Well, I, I think, you know, after his commitment to Super Rare, we were kind of waiting to see where Xcopy went. He has, uh, in a week, I believe he's dropping his Rare Pass one of one of X's. Uh, so so the new work. And it is interesting to certainly pair it with an independent release. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting to to agree to be the last artist a year out. You know, if, if Matt Cain is reconciling with contractual obligations, I'm curious what Xcopy is thinking about. We touched on the past, what it means to achieve fame and what it means to be a steward of the space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he is a private individual, unlike, say, somebody like Beeple. Mm-hmm. So the market is is a star ecosystem. So 42 editions on manifolds. I'm curious how these will sell. You know, something that I think we rarely see is <laughs> how artists engage with their their previous collectors. Yeah, if at all. Yeah, if if at all. They're, you know, the... There's there is literally timestamp records of that. So I'm I I kind of think, you know, I would love to see people experiment more with, you know, ways of rewarding and sticking around and maybe people who have kind of held the longest or whatever. Now seems like a time to not not be so market focused because it wasn't the market that got us to where we were to begin with. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, this is this is obviously important. Let me ask you a more general question. I mean, Xcopy has been doing this since as early as anybody has been doing this. I mean, minting since at least 2018. Um, so maybe not as early as anyone's been doing this, but as early as a lot of people have been doing this. What has your read been on Xcopy? as a figure moving throughout crypto arts trajectory. I mean, obviously it is somebody who is interested in critiquing or at least questioning crypto art culture at large and NFT culture. And we saw that with the grifters, um, async blueprints Mm -hmm. drop the 666 editions that were all uh, variations on a form, but the goal, it seems to me to be to critique the PFP meta, um, by being a PFP itself, but, I don't know. I mean, this is an artist who can sell more consistently and more markedly higher than almost every other artist in crypto art besides maybe people. So what is your read on this person's career at this point in this kind of like late stage crypto art moment? 
Yeah, totally. So I imagine the journey for X Copy as an individual has been exceptionally difficult, right? This was always somebody who was on the fringe, on the edge, and was reporting unique subculture back through the art. So he was never viewed kind of as a, a leader, although the art always was a market leader. It was reporting and capturing, right, the crypto subculture in this visual aesthetic, the things that have done so well, you know, right click, save as, um, you know, like, hello, admin, DM me. These were very tied to something at the time that was very small and then the spotlight shifted and they were a market leader and it seemed like they lost the entrance or the ability to exist in the subculture because they were the culture. Does that make sense? Definitely, definitely. So right after it really switched for me, I think after the JPEG summer, which was certainly an aesthetic shift into something that was more light and bubbly mm. as opposed to a lot of kind of the dark overtones, maybe the the, the scams and, and the death and just the raw, the very raw glitch. It yeah. became more pop. And Max Payne, I think, is is very pop. And then, you know, then then you start to wonder and want to know where the performance is going. I like the early X copies better. They're definitely different. I, I mean, I, I have no, I, I have not done a deep dive into the aesthetics of X copy over time, but I think that as a person within this culture that commands so much attention and so much influence, it will just be interesting on its face to just see what happens as Xcopy creates manifold pieces, right, on their own contract. What does that mean for marketplaces? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for something like Super Rare, which has historically mm -hmm. been a bastion for artists who create sought after one of one and low edition artwork, like, I guess, just one of one artwork an artist like Xcopy who has traditionally done that as they move into exploring different edition sizes and different drop mechanics using their own contracts. I wonder if the market will move very violently towards these kind of self-deployed contract uh, services like Zora or Manifold. I mean, largely this was the idea, you know, self-hosted, build your brand. Maybe, you know, when, when you're as big as Xcopy, you don't need the aggregated eyes mm. of a marketplace like Super Rare. Yeah. So you have the freedom to go and, and bring your art anywhere. And still, you know, he's never going to have an issue selling 42 editions of these. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how many of them are sold or if they are just sold to the highest 42 bidders or what the plan will be. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this moves. Obviously, this is a story that is still being written, but definitely worthy of attention because everything Xcopy does, whether good, bad, ugly or otherwise, is deserving of our attention. Yeah, I like this piece. I like this piece. I think it's a bit of a stylistic return to form. Yeah, I was going to say that. It comes back to the the monster aesthetic, the skulls, the uh, the layers of color. Um, and it and it has so much of that minimalistic appeal. Sure, certainly. I don't know if I necessarily understand it. Not yet, but that's. But who knows? Again, how the story of that piece will be written over time, and we will. Uh, with more information, I'm sure we will come back to this topic in the future. 
So for my last current event, Colwon, I wanted to talk about a larger trend that I've been seeing on Twitter specifically, but just generally in like the larger crypto art atmosphere, which is the rise and proliferation of these like art contests. So um, Patrick Amadon um, is hosting like a 404 series, which collects artists, I think every month and then chooses some amongst those to be exhibited or receive, you know, specific extra attention. Claire Silver has been doing this for quite a while with an AI contest, um, I think monthly as well, where a lot of people submit AI artworks and then um, Claire chooses a couple of them to highlight. Um, and I think they receive money as well. Uh, Cosmo Bedici does the same thing with, uh, partnered with Rollbit, which is a gambling service um, on something called Art Tank Tuesdays, very similar. The one winner or you know a few winners of many submissions are publicly posted and the artwork get, gets accolades or money or publicity. Um, to me, this feels a little bit more hostile and exclusionary than it does celebratory, uh, <laughs> just on the face. Like that, that, those are the words that came to mind. I mean, that's going to be the nature yeah. of any contest. But as somebody who has submitted countless short stories to countless like literary publications and in countless like story contests and just receives very nice, like we really love reading your story. It's just not right for us at this time. I can tell you that it does not feel like a celebratory achievement mm. for, you know, the very many who are performing this art. It's a selective contest that depends on the eyes and attitudes of those who are hosting it. So I'm curious, like I said, we've seen a proliferation of this. What do you think it says about crypto art in this moment that mm. larger and larger figures are becoming more and more interested in or um, uh, are feeling more and more motivated to host contests of this manner that prop up the few um, from a glut of people who are desperate for attention, sales, anything? I would have to probably first draw the distinction between the 404 catalog and what Cosimo is doing with Rollbit. Fair. Because, look, you know, the curation in Web3 is difficult. Right. And we've used joins tech joins tech is, is really interesting. I haven't looked too much into 404. Um, the problem of course, with all of this is that it is just a algorithmic kind of manipulation strategy. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> it's sad because I don't know why artists subject themselves to this and like think it's okay hope baby yeah you know it's i guess it's like you know a, a, a scratcher um <laughs> but at at the same time you know i've also helped facilitate it you know curation calls for nft paris mm -hmm. through the museum uh and you know we get hundreds of submissions and like a thousand plus likes. And, you know, I read every single one of those and I see every single one. I just wonder if it's the same for other people, because I know how much work that takes yeah. to review hundreds of artworks and to like choose and care and think about you know, a something thematic that is interesting, relevant, contemporary, but then I don't know 
you know, what that means, how, how much hope is real that these are kind of fair contests mm-hmm. or, or how much, you know, they're kind of predetermined in advance, if that makes sense. You know, there's this great story I learned in film school, um, the movie uh, Lethal Weapon with uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover was written by a gentleman named Shane Black. And as the story goes, Shane Black's script was thrown away. Um, it did something very interesting where it addressed the people in the room specifically. Uh, Shane Black knew the kind of people, the kinds of executives that would be reading any given script. And so address them in the, not by name, but by position in the script saying things like, oh, well, you're a very smart and talented um, like script director. So you understand what I'm saying here, things of that nature. Um, and mm-hmm. I believe it was some kind of janitorial employee who thought that that script was in the garbage by mistake and took it out and put it at the top of someone's desk um, at the top of the pile. And then it was seen, it was turned to a many serialized movie and Shane Black became a vaunted Hollywood writing icon. Um, mm. And it feels to me, it's, it's not sad. This is the nature of artistry, but it just feels reductive on all of our parts as the purveyors of these contests. And as the artists who are submitting to them, hoping that, you know, our work will stand out from the crowd. And the issue in crypto art Mm. is that, as I've said time and time again, there is so much aesthetic beauty. There is so much technical brilliance. There is so much thematic resonance. It's everywhere. You cannot avoid wonderful artwork. And so throwing your work into a Twitter contest and, you know, adding it to a hundreds and hundreds long uh, post thread, it just, it, it feels like last bastions of hope from artists who are hoping that they're going to get seen or recognized for something that is very meaningful to them, but the reality is may not be meaningful to anybody else. And in the same way that I only submit short stories to contests when I can do no more work on them and I don't really know what to do and there's no good place to get them seen, read, recognized other than throwing $3 to story magazine in the hopes that they're going to publish something. (laughs) It's a combination of hope and hopelessness um, with nowhere else to turn. Um, And I think that that's what this says to me more than anything is that there's just not that many places to turn if you are an artist without a huge following, without a huge publicity, who is trying to get noticed. Um, And so you throw yourself in the ring and you say, well, I have a one in one thousandth chance and you convince yourself that that's good enough. I don't know. I'm not obviously blaming anyone and I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea or again, malicious or, um, depraved to host these contests because it is going to discover a few people. It is going to get a few more people that publicity that didn't have it before. But I guess I'm just disappointed that this seems to be a more widely adopted fashion for getting eyes on artists than otherwise. And it seems to be the place where people are going to. I am slowly beginning to accept that the crypto art that I knew and loved will never be the crypto art that exists again. Mm. And I think it would behoove all of us uh, to to move on, and nobody is more nostalgic than myself, from this past where things were more egalitarian, they were more free, because this is just not the nature of the world. Uh, yeah. It brings me back to a 2019 piece from Max Osiris um, called Never Going to Work Again, The Mathematics of Hope. Mm-hmm. And it was it's based on one of the most shared images ever on Facebook, uh, which just so happens to be of a of a fake lottery winner. So, you know, what he writes is that it's a meditation on power, virality, hope, mathematics, luck, 
and the selling of a dream. Uh, and I think, of course, as you know, AI continues to creep into all facets of existence in a future where maybe in five to 10 years, you know, 99% of the internet will be deep faked. Mm -hmm. It, it, yeah, you know, there just like is a questioning hope for for what is one individual's influence and and what at what level can they participate and effectuate? And I'd like to just yeah make one more quick point, which is the nature of these contests does not allow for context in the way that we've been talking about with all of these artists. I mean, we keep talking about Matt Cain, but like contractual obligations, the um, series from a couple of weeks ago is a wonderful example of what an artist can do when they're able to generate added context around their work. And when it comes to these contests where you are given a blurb at best, um, and then just an image at worst, we know that aesthetics don't mean anything anymore. So how do you mm -hmm. marry this kind of, I don't know, contest ideology, this picking, plucking a couple lucky ones from the clump, while also allowing these artists who are all gifted thinkers and technical um, or technicians in their own right to give their work the context of its creation, of its meaning, of its theme, of its implication going forward. I'm not sure there's an answer to that. Yeah, I don't know. You know, somebody minted a piece on, on Zero One that I caught in passing. It said, you know, there's too, humans have made too many damn images. Mm. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. That's the, and maybe, yeah. you know, it's and it was kind of like the argument that they were using in the Hollywood writer strike, that there was already so much content on Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Max, between all of these things that and it's good that you could spend the rest of your life and probably never get bored yeah right and also you know it goes back to just the way that production is done now that perhaps you know the best movies have already been made mm. um and perhaps in this content like the most real human arts has already been made i don't know i don't know if that's crazy I don't know if we need more. We're going to get a hundred X more until we cannot possibly consume within our brains, like another bit of digital information. It's going to accelerate at a speed, which is just unheard of. Yes, it will. And it will be weird. Um, this is neither here nor there. So but I, something has to get. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have this existential fear of boredom as like the fate of all people um, that you would just like, what if you could experience and know every single thing in the universe, right? Like Faust. Um, and then what would you do afterwards? And thinking about what you just said with the idea that we'll never be bored again, whenever we'll have content, whenever we'll lack content ever again, right? You just experience everything. And then you go back to the beginning and you re-experience and you forget, and then you re-experience and I'm watching bad men for the eighth mm -hmm. time. And it's as mm -hmm. compelling as it was the first time. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily related to these contests or anything, but it's an interesting point to end on. Um, anything else you wanted to discuss today, Colborn? I think that was pretty solid. I, I, these conversations always get me thinking, and uh, just, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, me too. Hopefully, everyone listening, it gets you thinking as well. Um, if you liked what we made you think about on this podcast, please give us a follow, a subscribe, a uh, five-star rating on wherever you're getting your podcast, be that Spotify or Apple. Uh, if you want to see more of what we do, specifically writing, uh, please subscribe to our Substack. That's museumofcrypto.substack.com. We have a column that comes out every Wednesday called Dear Mocha, where we answer your questions, your, I got a poem, 
once uh, we get everything, we respond to it. We like to write about crypto art and talk about things that are interesting. Uh, we'll be back later this week with a Mocha Live podcast. You're listening to this, I presume, on a Tuesday or thereafter. So watch out Friday for another Mocha Live. And Coborn, please give us last thoughts for the people listening. No, no last thoughts. Just super grateful for everybody. You know, we're, we're not going here uh, until this thing breaks or your brain cannot handle another digital bit. Uh, so we'll keep offering it up until one of those things happens. Outlive, outlast, outthink, outsurvive. That's what we do on the Mocha podcast. So <laughs> thank you everyone for being here with us and we will see you all real soon. Thanks again. Bye now. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Coborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Coborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangold, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.